What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to Marshall Media Montage, episode 94, where I'm going to be talking about executive decision, no hard feelings, uh, M. Night Shyamalan's old, Indiana Jones, Dial of Destiny, Apocalypse Zero, AD Police, a prequel to the Bubblegum Crisis anime, and Talk to Me, <clears throat> as well as, uh, you know, recent pickups and what games I'm playing. But before I get into those uh, movies and anime OVA, uh, whether they be old or new, I would like to tell you that I've still been playing Sly Cooper uh, 3 on PS2. There's a lot more uh, 3D elements involved, which is really cool, you know, taking the uh, 3D glasses and doing specific missions. Um, it's it's definitely gotten better. I'm only about maybe 30, 31% complete uh, with the game. <clears throat> it incorporates uh, older characters. You also get to play as newer uh, characters. You play as Carmelita Fox. The only thing that sucks is her controls are all wonky. Left is right, right is left, uh, up is down, down is up. It's, it's a little backwards. I don't know why they did that, but I mean, <clears throat> you know, hey, she's still a fox, right? <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> playing Bentley's missions are pretty fun too, like hacking the computers and it has like a little Space Invaders, like Centipede Galaga kind of feel to it. Um, and the music too, the chip tunes. Murray's still just as annoying as ever. Like, oh, I'm the Murray. I'm the muscle. <laughs> I'm an idiot pretty much. Yeah. But uh, it's still pretty fun. You get to play as uh, Murray's guru, who is a koala. And uh, what's funny is, you know, he doesn't necessarily speak English. He speaks and then uh, the rest of the gang can understand what he says he's just like oh but that you know like making these noises and i'm like well what is he saying there's no uh subtitles but everybody else understands him apparently um <clears throat> and he can uh transform into like nothing apparently on the ground and you know he can avoid uh, uh minions and lackeys and so forth he can also jump on their back and use them to run into things yeah i mean it's it's pretty cool and then uh bentley apparently gets some sort of girlfriend i think is her uh i guess character in the game she's also like a computer whiz just like bentley her name is like priscilla i think she's like some sort of like i don't know what the hell she is she's definitely something sort of like a rodent or marsupial type character kind of similar to like how sly cooper is um but uh, yeah sly cooper 3 is uh it's still a lot of fun um, i'm enjoying it there's no messages in a bottle to collect there's no uh safe or codes to crack you essentially just collect coins and then go to the thief net the little computer in the headquarters and then uh, purchase your upgrades from there and certain missions require the upgrades so it is what it is but uh yeah i'm enjoying that i've been playing uh, mr gimmick on switch which is which was an incredibly expensive uh, famicom as well as um pal uh the european region nes game back in the day it's a really really expensive game made by sunsoft but it looks like the uh artwork kind of of like how labs did for uh, kirby and it's a really fun uh, platform. It's just incredibly fucking difficult. I think there's only maybe like seven or eight stages. I'm on maybe like episode, not episode, sorry, uh, stage like five or six. And um, it's really nice, the uh, rewind feature as well as the save state now. I mean, I was like, I was using the rewind feature like every chance I got because I kept getting hurt because, I mean, it's a fun game, but it's, wow, it's hard. <laughs> Holy crap. Uh, fun, fun game though by uh, Sunsoft. It's on a uh, Switch now. I think it's only maybe like 13, 14 bucks compared to, you know, a couple hundred, if not a thousand dollars or whatever the hell it is on a uh, PAL NES or even a uh, Famicom. It's super expensive. Uh, I've also been playing Jack Axe, which is kind of like at a medieval version of uh, Meat Boy, I guess per se, as far as uh, action platforming goes. And it's kind of drawn like that, uh, you know, 8-bit, like, pixel style. It, it's a lot of fun. I'm having having a good time with that. I, I'd only played it a couple hours, maybe, like, one or two, maybe three max. And, um, yeah, I, I was enjoying that. Also, really super cheap, maybe, like, three to five bucks on Switch if you guys are interested. Uh, and then I've been playing a little bit of Maximo on PS2. Still, um, <clears throat> I think I've only beaten maybe one or two bosses. And, uh, you know, the sequel to... Uh, was it ghosts and goblins or ghouls and ghosts? You play as Maximo. Uh, the cutscenes are really cool. The camera angles definitely suck in this game. It's an early PS2 game. How I said before, you can tell as you can flip the disc over and you're like, yep, that's a blue bottom. It's an early, early PS2 disc um, within its life cycle of existence. Um, <clears throat> but it's it's still a pretty fun uh, action platforming game. You just got to get used to the controls. And it is definitely a, a pretty difficult game. Um, I've been playing Ocarina of Time on my 64 with my Hyperkin uh, wireless controller. Super, super cool. I'm glad that I have that thing. It was an adjustment to get used to where they put the Z button. It's kind of like how L1 and L2 or R1 and R2 would work as far as uh, a PlayStation controller. That's where the Z button is at now. Um, the joystick feels good. The A and B and the C buttons, they're they're okay. But, you know, you, you get what you pay for. I'm glad it's wireless and uh, the wireless receiver that goes to the console it also has the adapter port for the uh, memory card as well as the uh, expansion pack or the transfer pack um, rather than having it built into the controller making it heavy and awkward but uh 
yeah, I've been enjoying the controller and also been playing, um, yeah, like I said, uh, Ocarina of Time. I'm maybe a half hour in. I was like, all right, well, I'm going to get back to PS2 because I don't I usually, when I play something, I like to hurry up and play and beat that and then move on to something else rather than confuse myself and watch multiple TV shows or movies at once or um, play multiple video games and lose track of uh, the gameplay or the mechanics or the story and so forth. But uh, And then I was playing a little bit of a... Uh, Ken Griffey's Major League Baseball on 64, just doing the home run derby. That's also a lot of fun. Ah, that brings me back. Just some good times with my old man playing uh, some baseball in 64. But uh, recent pickups, I picked up uh, some turtle toys. I got, what, the uh, beach buggy, or yeah, the beach buggy um, that goes with uh, Cowbunga surfing uh, Mikey. I have that already. I got uh, Metalhead. I got um, pizza face. Yes. His, one of his legs is missing. I noticed that. And I just put like a paper clip in there. I'm like, eh, screw it. I was like, this will work. Um, <laughs> so, uh, what else did I get? Um, leatherhead. I got, uh, rock steady. I got, um, three different iterations of a uh, Donatello that I didn't have. It was like detective Donatello. Um, the, uh, sewer manhole cover on his back where his tongue is sticking out. And then it's like the, uh, United Tur- uh, United Turtle like Space Force or something. I, at first, I thought it was like a Ghostbuster uh, costume. I was like, cool, they did a crossover of Ghostbusters Ninja Turtle, but no, I was wrong. Um, you know, and uh, among many other turtles that I got, some of them are extra, some of them I might give away to some friends or I could use them as trade fodder, but I figured 60 bucks for like, I don't know, like 30 pieces of turtles. I was like, that's not bad. I was like, I'll, I'll take that. I'll take the L on that if some of them are broken, which... Some of them are, or they're a little dirty. I was like, I could fix them. I was like, it's not that critical. I was like, just to have these, I was like, it's always hard to find uh, villains. You know, I just cleaned them up with a Clorox wipe because some of them were pretty grimy and gross, but they're in better condition now. I also picked up uh, recently uh, the original six films of Star Trek. I was never a big Star Trek fan as a kid, and I'm about almost done with the uh, second film. I watched the first one already. It's it's all right. I, I would still say that I'm much more of a Star Wars fan over uh, Star Trek any day. It's just a cool piece to have because it has the, uh, was it the uh, Enterprise on the uh, box covers and it, you know, displays kind of like the artwork, like the complete um, Enterprise in its entirety. Super cool to have. I mean, six bucks, you know, for all six movies on VHS, the box set. I was like, I can't, can't complain. I was like, if I don't like it, I only lost six bucks. I'm not worried about it. Oh boy. <clears throat> so that's about as far as I got as far as recent pickups and games I'm playing and uh, the episode 94 I'm going to be talking about once again executive decision no hard feelings old by M. Night Shyamalan Indiana Jones Dial of Destiny Apocalypse Zero an anime OVA AD Police also an anime OVA only three episodes Apocalypse Zero was two and uh, the new horror film Talk to Me Mwah-ah-ah. there you have it that was a long intro for episode 94 but I had a lot to confey confey yeah I had a lot of confetti to fucking spew out of my mouth like a retard Jeez, what the hell is wrong with me? Shouldn't be saying that R word, excuse me, because I know some people get offended. Uh, anyway, <laughs> episode 94, here it is, everybody. Let's go. All right, guys, I'm going to be talking to you guys first and foremost about an executive decision. I have a VHS copy that I picked up a while ago at an uh, antique store, I believe for about a dollar to maybe two dollars. Hang on, let me get a sip of water here. Ah, executive Decision, 1996, rated R, 2 hours and 13 minutes, has a 6.5 out of 60,000 reviews. It is an action-adventure thriller, uh, easily of the um, action VHS copies that I just bought, I don't know, recently, maybe a, a month ago. This is probably the best one that I watched. I mean, the other ones were entertaining, but in my opinion, this was the best one that I enjoyed. Uh, it's about when terrorists seize a control of an airliner, an intelligence analysis, a company's a commando unit for mid-air boarding operation, directed by Stuart Baird. Let's see what else this individual did. <coughs> Excuse me. He is responsible for Superman, uh, Skyfall, Casino Royale, as well as Star Trek Nemesis. I know Skyfall, the uh, 007 film, and of course, uh, Superman with Christopher Reeves. Okay. All right. Moving on, what else we got here? Uh, starring, of course, Kurt Russell, Halle Berry, and John Leguizamo, as well as, uh, what's his face, uh, Steven Seagal is in it for a couple minutes. I know he had a contractual obligation, then he pretty much dies, and that's <laughs> and then you just move on immediately from there. Um, Oliver Platt is in this. He is basically responsible for um, basically stopping the uh, bomb near the uh, end. Uh, Joe Morton is in this. Joe Morton, you might remember him from uh, Terminator 2, who also is... Uh, a scientist, I guess, if you will. He plays a Sergeant uh, Campbell Cappy Matheny. In this film, he's uh, kind of a similar character. Uh, Steven Seagal, as I mentioned earlier, uh, passes. Whip Hubley is in this as well. He's also very famous. Uh, who else we got here that I could recognize? Okay, all right, that's it. 
Moving on, <clears throat> the tagline here is fasten your seatbelts. Short, quick, to the point, I like it. All right, let's take a look at trivia here. It's always pretty interesting. Trivially, according to John Leguizamo in his auto bio, Steven Seagal physically attacked him during uh, filming in an effort to scare the cast and crew. Leguizamo claimed that during rehearsals, Seagal had come in and told the cast that I'm in command. What I say is the law. Thinking it was a joke, Leguizamo started to laugh, but Seagal proved him wrong by slamming him against a brick wall with an Aikido elbow knocking all the air out of him and dropping him to the ground. In 2022, John Leguizamo confirmed that he did not have a good time with Steven Seagal on the set. No one has. <laughs> Jeez. According to Leguizamo in his autobio, his frequent improvisation angered Kurt Russell so much that he got into a shoving match. Leguizamo improvised line, hope the smell doesn't give us away, started the fight. Oh, wow. <laughs> Originally, Halle Berry refused the part in the film but said yes when she was offered $1 million for the job. This was her first $1 million payment for a film. Okay, well, David Grant is seen taking flight lessons and he's about to go solo. In real life, Kurt Russell is an FAA licensed pilot holding ratings for several aircraft types. Interesting. Did not know that. Lastly, originally developed at Paramount, the studio that put uh, the project in a turnaround sold it to Warner Brothers in exchange for the rights and screenplay to Forrest Gump two years prior, in 94. Executive decision was considered a hot project while Forrest Gump was going through multiple problems with the script and casting. In addition, some Warner executives were afraid that the success of Rain Man, 88, what, what is that, fucking eight years prior? No, I can do math. Eight, eight, yeah, eight years prior, yep, would prevent, or excuse me, would preempt Gump due to perceived similarities of the project's similar uh, subject material, both involved lead characters with mental disabilities. Interesting. Okay, well... It is what it is. Okay, that's all I got as far as trivia for executive decision. Let's move on now. Released March 15th, 1996. Also known as Executive Action in Other Countries. Okay. Filmed in Alverno High School, Sierra Madre, California. Uh, released by Warner Brothers and Silver Pictures. Its budget was $55 million and it grossed $121.9 million. So it almost grossed $70 million. So I'd say it was a success considering its rating. All right, let's see what Wiki has to say about it. <clears throat> Excuse me. It depicts the rescue of an airliner hijacked by terrorists by a small team placed on a plane mid-flight. Released March 15, 1996. Gross 122 off of a $55 million budget, as I've already just stated. All right. Production-wise, Steven Seagal said he was enticed to accept the unusual role of Austin Travis by a hefty uh, salary. Amounted to around a million dollars per day spent on the shoot. Wow. Holy crap. Uh, he also found some satisfaction in knowing that his character's unexpected fate would shock the audience, haha, <laughs> and therefore did not regret taking the role. Former Warner Brothers Vice President Bill Daly later stated Seagal agreed to the role in exchange for the studio, forgiving him for losing his director's salary due to give, going over budget with his directorial debut on Deadly Ground. <clears throat> Exterior shots of the Boeing 747 were done using models and two real aircraft, apparently. Grant McCune Design constructed two models for actual shooting, one model to test the rig, and one complete lower half for close-ups for landing gear extension sequences. Makes perfect sense if you think about it. On a one and a half nose section scale, section for stealth docking sequences. Two models of the remora were also made at a one sixth scale, one of the docking sequences motion controlled snorkel and articulated hatch, and another for post docking sequences. Makes perfect sense. The F 14s featured in the film came from the VF 84 Jolly Rogers squadron. This would be the last Hollywood appearance before their disestablishment. Wow. The latter aircraft was stored in the Mojave Airspace Port in Mojave, uh, California. I know where that's at. After filming wrapped up and was subsequently scrapped in 1998. Wow. Receptively, critical response Rotten Tomatoes. It has an approval rating of 63% on reviews from 41 critics with an average rating of 6.3 out of 10. The consensus reads, uh, it adheres entertainingly to classic action thriller formula, proving a genre outing doesn't need to win points for original originality excuse me to be solidly effective on a review aggregator metacritic the film has an approval of 62 out of 100 based on 20 critics uh, the audience polls that the cinema score give it an a minus out of a to f scale okay oh let's see what leonard malton has to say here i actually have a a, a huge it's like 2002 2003 like leonard malton uh book that covers i don't know like movies from like the 40s 50s up until like 2001 or two and it's a pretty thick book. I should probably pick that up and just see what he has to say. But anyway, speaking of what uh, Leonard Malton has to say, let's see what he has to say about executive decision. He called it edit, a tense and inventive thriller which needed more editing. Eh, to each his own, I suppose. Leonard Clady of Variety wrote, The picture's logic may be a bit fast but loose, but its action and excitement quotient is top-notch. Agreed. Rod Reber, here we go. Ooh, three out of four stars. Good job, guy. Calling it a gloriously goofy mess of a movie with several plot holes. Yeah, sure, but I mean, it was still a lot of fun, Roger. All right? Okay. You don't always have to be a twat. Anyway, <laughs> Ebert praised the fast, or excuse me, the first act plot twist of killing off the character played by Seagal, a major Hollywood stall. I perked right up. Yeah, 
because even audiences or critics at that time didn't necessarily expect that. I can definitely agree with that. Accolades. <laughs> Steven Seagal earned a Razzie Award nomination for Worst Supporting Actor for his performance in the film, but lost to Marlon Brando for The Island of Dr. Moreau. Yeah, that's a terrible film, too. Uh, I've been wanting to watch that one, The Island of Dr. Moreau. I think that's the last Marlon Brando film, but that movie flopped. Wow. Okay, that being said, moving on from Executive Decision, let's talk about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I was very, very impressed with this. There was a lot of cool uh, cameos. Uh, Marion is up. Uh, she's in it at the end. Uh, the guy who plays, uh, what's his name? Uh, Saul? Salton? I can't remember. He was in uh, what Raiders of the Lost Ark, the uh, Middle Eastern uh, actor. He's in this as well. Um, it just it has that old formula feel to it, and it doesn't go over the top with uh, technology. I mean, despite you know this being about Archimedes' uh, Dial of Destiny and uh, time travel and so forth, it's not like how the previous one was with like aliens. It's just the right amount of uh, just a little bit of I guess sci-fi, if you will, but. Uh, I really enjoyed this one. I was impressed. I thought I was going to be like, wow, this is dumb. I really enjoyed it. That being said, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny 2023 PG-13, 2 hours and 34 minutes is an action adventure, rightly so. Excuse me. All I had was a Jimmy Dean's breakfast sandwich and some waffles and I think an energy drink <laughs> and some water and I'm burping, whatever. Archaeologist Indiana Jones races against time to retrieve a legendary artifact that can change the course of history. Has a 6.8 out of 94,000, and rightly so. I, I'd almost even maybe give it a 7. I was very, very impressed with this one. I would say it's worthy of being the fourth entry. Uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull can go, I don't know, kick rocks. That being said, directed by James Mangold. Let's see what else this individual did, because I don't recognize that name. Uh, he did, oh, he did Walk the Line. I really liked that one. Oh, he did Logan as well and Ford vs. Ferrari. Okay, I love all three of those movies, so okay. Uh, yeah, I know Logan's a uh, comic book-related uh, film, but it didn't really feel too comic book-heavy, I guess. Uh, speaking of which, he also directed a film called Heavy in 1995. I, I am intrigued since I liked the other three because Ford vs. Ferrari was absolutely incredible. So was Logan, and Walk the Line was also fantastic. So, all right. Good job, James Mangold. I will uh, continue to watch your films. And be on the lookout for those. All right. Starring Harrison Ford, of course. Uh, Antonio Banderas, that's right. He played a character named Ronaldo. Excuse me, spoilers here. He's uh, on a little uh, fishing boat, and they go, uh, you know, like deep sea diving. Uh, Salah. Sorry, my fucking ADD is kicking in. Salah is the uh, guy. Not Sultan or Sally or whatever the hell I named it. Uh, Sally? <laughs> it's Salah is uh, the guy from Resident of the Lost Ark. He's also in this John Rice davies But Antonio Banderas' character, Ronaldo, he is on the uh, boat. And, uh, yeah, he perishes. Um, Karen Allen plays Marion, just like how she did in uh, the previous Warriors of the Lost Ark. She is in this. She is also the mother to uh, Smalls in uh, Sandlot. For those of you that be like, oh, who's Karen Allen? Oh, yeah, now I know. Okay, uh, Toby Jones plays Basil Shaw. Basil is a little, uh, I guess, kind of like an assistant to uh, Indy uh, throughout the film off and on. Uh, he's a, definitely a recognizable actor, too, when you see him. Mads Mikkelsen plays Dr. Voller who's a, a German, um, I guess he's the uh, the Nazi in this film, I guess, if you will, who, um, for lack of a better phrase, is the main uh, antagonist. Okay, uh, Francis Chan, who else is in this? I don't recognize anybody else. All right, that being said, let's move on. Let's read uh, the storyline here. Experience the return of legendary hero Indy Jones in the fifth installment. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it's the fourth installment. Yeah, fuck the previous one. Of this beloved swashbuckling series of the film. Finding himself in a new era, approaching retirement, Indy wrestles with uh, fitting into a world that seems to have outgrown him. This film takes place in the 60s, essentially. Uh, it fast-forwards time, per se. It, it's it's relevant in regards to, because most of the time, you know, he's fighting, what, like, Russians and Nazis, usually, what, in the 30s, during, like, World War II era. So, yeah, it's clearly, like, 20, 30 years after the fact, and you can tell that it's during, like, the hippie, uh, you know, Haight-Ashbury era. Indy wrestles with, uh, okay, but as the tentacles of all too familiar evil returns in the form of an old rivalry... Hence the Nazi era, as I mentioned. Indy must don his hat and pick up his whip once more to take sure an ancient, powerful artifact doesn't fall into the wrong hands. Tagline here is, a legend will face his destiny. And that's perfect. That's all you need. You don't need a fucking novel of a sentence. You just need a simple sentence. He's here to do his job. Like, it's as simple as that, in my opinion. Anyway, trivially, let's read what I have to uh, <coughs> convey here about uh, Indiana Jones. Yeah, let's let's hear what I have to confetti about this uh <laughs> Fucking film. Anyway, John Rhys Davies had expressed interest in reprising his role as Salah. Hell yeah. 
that's cool that he decided to do that. Yeah, ever since Raiders uh, in 1981, as well as Last Crusade in 89 with uh, Sean Connery, rest in peace. He was offered a cameo in the wedding scene in The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, but he thought the character of Salah was worth more of the audience than that. Even you stood up for yourself in that regard. That's awesome, dude. Hell yeah. Okay, moving on. Harrison Ford would embark on a 40-mile bike ride and daily walks to get in shape for Indiana Jones. And it shows, because there's a couple shirtless scenes, you know, for like a 70-year-old dude. He's got like a six-pack still. He looks like he can still, you know, swashbuckle here and swashbuckle in outer space with Chewbacca and kick ass. You know what I mean? He just fucking ain't, dude. Yeah, he, I was like for a, you know, an old, old man. I was like, he's still in great shape. He looks incredible. Anyway, that being said... In an interview on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert in 2015, Harrison Ford explained how the filmmakers digitally de-aged him for flashback sequences. Right. They have this artificial uh, intelligence program that they can go through every foot of the film that Lucasfilm owns. Because I did a bunch of movies for them, they have all this footage, including films that weren't printed. Interesting. So they can mine it from where the light is coming from, from the expression. I don't know how they do it, but that's my actual face. Then I put little dots on my face and I say the words and they make it. It's fantastic. At 80 years old. Okay, so I said 70. He is 80. He is the oldest actor to be de-aged in a film, surpassing Al Pacino, who was 79 when he was de-aged in The Irishman 2019. That was a solid film as well. Uh, what else we got here? George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and Paramount Pictures first agreed to five Indiana Jones film in 1979, two years prior to making Raiders. The release was finally complete, uh, the initial agreement. Wow, that's really cool. Rumors of Chris Pratt and even Bradley Cooper possibly assuming the titular role of Indiana Jones were laid to rest as of 2015. Thank God. Thank you. Not that I don't necessarily dislike those guys, but I don't want, I don't want to see that. No. With confirmation from the studios attached that Harrison Ford would be reprising the role of Indy, Ford subsequently stated in 2019, uh, four years ago, that he didn't want his character to be recast, saying, when I'm gone, he's gone. It's easy. He later confirmed in 2022 that the fifth film would be his last time playing the character. Oh, okay, so this is the last one. Okay, I, I mean, I get it. Uh, unless he was on board, for example, how he said the whole AI type thing. Like, if they wanted to, you know, if he put, like, one of those suits on and, you know, mimicked movement, and uh, obviously they were able to capture his voice and his face and, uh, you know, body language, and if they wanted to do some sort of sense of, a proper, uh, you know, AI that didn't look too shitty and they made like a sixth film with him involved and de-aged him, I'd be on board for something like that. I was like, you know, he's a little too old to be doing his own stunts. I, I totally get that. I'm just saying like, I'm normally not like an AI enthusiast type deal, but if they wanted to do that with Indiana Jones and Harrison Ford, you know, being attached to the film, even though he's not necessarily in it per se, like pfft, I'm okay with that. All right. Uh, cameo. There is a Sean Connery cameo. A couple of photos of Henry Jones Jr. can be seen in the apartment of Indiana Jones in New York. Uh, I definitely watched it, but I guess I didn't notice that. And as I stated, Karen Allen as Marion is at the end of the film. I, I was very, very impressed with this. I, I really very much so liked it. And I, <clears throat> you know, am enthused to talk about it. And I hope you guys get out there and go watch it. Release date, June 30th, as of this year, 2023, as of this recording, also known as Indiana Jones 5. I'm glad that they didn't put numbers to them because I just, eh, I don't feel the need to put numbers to them. Production companies, Walt Disney, of course, Lucasfilm, as well as Paramount Pictures. Box office, $294.7 million, but it grossed almost $100 million on top of that, $375.6 million. So it's, it's definitely doing well for itself, and as it should, because it's fantastic. All right, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, according to Wikipedia, premiered out of the completion of the 76th Cannes Film Festival on May 18th, 2023. Theatrically released June 30th as of this year, as I mentioned. <clears throat> Underperforming at the box office due to a lack of wild, uh, not wild, excuse me, wide appeal for moviegoers and an expensive overall uh, budget, resulting in a $100 million write-down for the studio. Okay, all right. What else we got here, production-wise? <clears throat> so in 1979, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg made the deal with Paramount to do five films overall, as I've stated, and they uh, completed that. Lucas began researching the potential plot devices for another film in 2008, stated Spielberg was opening to directing it, as he had done for the previous films, explaining the process for each film. Ford said that we came to some basic agreement and then George goes away for a long time and works on it. Then Steven and I get it in some form, some embryonic form, that is. Then if we like it, we start working with George on it, and at some point down the line, it's ready, and we do it. Lucas stressed the importance of having MacGuffin, that is a super uh, uh, natural but still grounded in reality with an archaeological or historical background, saying you can't just make something up like a time machine. Right, and they didn't. It's uh, Archimedes' uh, dial, the uh, classic, you know, uh, 
what a mathematician in, in that time. Uh, speaking about the previous film uh, franchise's feature, Lucas said that we still have issues about the direction we'd like to take in the future, Stevens in the past. He's trying to drag it back to the way that they were. I'm trying to push it to a whole different place. So still we have some sense of uh, tension involved. Later in 2008, Ford stated that Lucas's concept for the fifth film was crazy but great. And in November 2010, two years later, Ford said that Lucas was still working on the project. In July 2012, producer Frank Marshall stated that the project had no writer and said about its progress, I don't know if it's definitely not happening, but it's not up and running. Fast forward a little bit. In May 2015, Kennedy confirmed that Lucasfilm would eventually make another uh, film. The Crystal Skull ended positively... Uh, I don't know why, but whatever, <laughs> for Indiana Jones with his marriage to Marion uh, Ravenwood. Well, that's that's true, I suppose, in that regard. Ford did not necessarily view the film as a definitive ending for Jones, wishing to make one more that could expand the character and conclude his journey. Agreed. Ford felt that the Crystal Skull ended in a kind of suspended animation. Also agreed. There was not a real strong sense of uh, conclusion or the closure that I had always hoped for. According to Kennedy, we all felt that we could conclude the series with one more movie. Given the fact that Harrison was so excited to try and do another one, we should do it. Uh, Spielberg and Ford had discussed a couple of stories by the end of 2015. Uh, Pre-production, as of 2017, the film's release date was pushed back to 2020 uh, since they were working on Ready Player One as of 2018 at that time. In February 2020, Spielberg stepped down as director and he wanted to pass on the film uh, to a new series and filmmaker for a fresh perspective. James Mangold steps in as of May of 2020, uh, who, like I mentioned, worked on Ford vs. Ferrari as well as uh, Walk the Line. Uh, Mangold wrote that the new screenplay <clears throat> worked with him previously on Ford vs. Ferrari over the course of six to eight months. I wanted to retool the existing script pretty aggressively, almost entirely. And uh, he credits uh, James Man, or he, excuse me, he credits. Uh, I can't read the guy's name here. I, I'm not even going to butcher that one for his earlier work. Sure, why not? <laughs> he considers Raiders of the Lost Ark one of his favorite film series of all time, and I, I can agree with you there. It's fantastic. You go to the original because that's where they standard was started and that's where the set was built as he stated so okay yeah I, it, it shows in his filmmaking it was this movie was literally a solid throwback with a couple modern twists here and there and, and it was fan, fucking fantastic i loved it earlier films that featured nazis as the antagonist and james mangold and the butterworths were inspired by operation paperclip as a way of reincorporating them for the dial of destiny makes perfect sense james mangold consulted with lucas and spielberg who served as executive producers as the script was being written mangold would send pages to the duo for their input recalling advice that spielberg offered mangold saying it's a movie that it's a trailer from beginning to end it will always be moving and yeah i mean the guy's a fucking mastermind you know so there you have it uh, principal photography began in England as of June 4th, 2021 for filming. Soundstage filming took place at Pinewood Studios, as it has been multiple times before for a lot of these types of films. The latter locations were used for opening sequences, including a train chase scene and a motorcycle uh, scene involving Ford's stunt double. Ford himself was spotted in Grossman June 7th, 2021. The railway bridge scene was uh, filmed in mid-June of 2021 at the Scottish Borders. The interior trains were shot filmed at Pinewood Studios, as they should be. I completely get that. All right, what else we got here? In 2021, the sequence involving Archimedes' tomb was filmed at Pinewood Studios as well. I, I get that because you can tell it's CGI, but it's acceptable CGI. It doesn't look like fucking Transformers bullcrap in my mind. Anyway, <laughs> the remainder of the filming took place at Pinewood, of course, wrapping in February 26th of 2022. Estimated production budget of $294.7 million at that time. Spielberg offered his advice in the script, which dailies and later visited the editing room with a number of times he praised the finished film and I, i'm on board with that I, I can i can be on his side here uh spielberg effectively uh, as far as special effects go used motion capture for his animated film the adventures of tintin in 2011 he rejected the idea of using his method to digitally de-age ford saying in 2012 he wanted the actor's age to be acknowledged in the film that's fair by mid-2019 spielberg and co-op had devised a five-minute world war ii opening sequence that would feature a de-aged ford upon taking over the project mangold expanded the sequence to roughly 25 minutes after filming, the de-aging footage was modified shot by shot using a variety of techniques. ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, which is known as THX uh, Sound Studios today. Uh, hence where THX 1138, the first George Lucas film, comes from. Artists had particularly difficulty getting Ford's eyes to look right. And I can see that. Yeah, you can tell, but it, it's not like overly bearing where you're like, I'm not going to watch this movie. According to visual effects supervisor Robert Weaver, many times we weren't quite getting the right balance of the eye opening and the shape of the overall eyes. We were continually having reference both, what's both? B-O-L-T-H, sure, a new fucking word. Both older footage and was shot in camera. Ford was somewhat spooked by the de-aging process, but was nonetheless impressed. 
Yeah, it, it shows. It, it works. The film has a total of 23... Uh, no, I'm sorry, 2,350 effects shots, including many that occur during the Syracuse siege sequence. Interesting. Of course, 2016, Spielberg confirmed that John Williams, of course, did the theme to this. Yeah, come on, we all know. It's fantastic. Scoring the previous films within the franchise, returned to compose the music for the fifth film, and rightly so, I wouldn't want anybody else to do it, right? Makes perfect sense. Oh, gosh, it was just, it was fantastic. Uh, home media is concerned. Indiana Jones' Dial of Destiny is scheduled to be released on digital formats as of August 29th. So I have about nine more days until it to be uh, considered digitally uh, acceptable to be uh, purchased, rented, and so forth, and watched at home. Uh, here we go. Critical response. Review aggregator Rotten Tomatoes. 69% as of 397 critics' reviews are positive, with an average rating of 6.4 out of 10. Websites consensus reads, it isn't as thrilling as earlier adventures, uh, yeah, okay, but the nostalgic rush of seeing Harrison Ford back in action, uh, finding a few final bits of cinematic treasure is just sublime, and, and I could agree with that, yeah. It, it has, like I said, older elements that we are definitely all too familiar with nostalgically, but it's its own kind of tale, and, and it works, though. It's It was great. Metacritic using a weighted average assigning the film score 50 out of 100 based on 65 critics, indicating mixed or average reviews. Uh, cinema score gives it a B plus on an A to F scale. I'd give it at least an A, A minus, personally. You know, I, I thought it was fantastic. Uh, accolades, uh, what do we got here? Golden Trailer Awards as of 2023. Future Disney CEO Bob Iger said in 2016, the future of the franchise with Ford was unknown. The fifth film would not be a final installment within the franchise, according to Disney CEO. That's new to me. I, considering Paramount in 1979, they had their agreement, you know, with Spielberg and uh, George Lucas to do only five films. They're trying to do more. I don't know if they're going to do like a Young Indiana Jones Chronicles again. I don't know. Let me, let me read and I will explain. In 2022, Kennedy reaffirmed comments that Ford's role as Indiana Jones would not be recast while Ford confirmed that the fifth film would be his last in the series. November, Disney considered multiple options to continue the franchise as of 2022, including additional films for the television series for Disney+. Plus. By March, as of this year, 2023, Lucasfilm reported to have canceled a planned Indiana Jones prequel series to focus on Star Wars franchise. And it, it shows because there is... It's almost an overabundance of like Star Wars everywhere now as far as uh, prequels, uh, in between series, after the series, whatever. Anyway, it would have been the second prequel series following the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Disney confirmed that the following month the film would be indeed be the last in the franchise. Okay, so that's it for uh, the Harrison Ford franchise. I I'd be totally okay if they did, yeah, like some sort of Disney, I don't know, mini series though or something of Indiana Jones and did, like I said before, an AI uh, aspect of it because they, they did a good job. All right. That being said, enough of Indiana Jones. Let's get to the uh, the new horror film. Talk to me. I'm going to start with Wikipedia right now. I watched it uh, obviously this year, but it says it came out last year in 2022. It is an Australian supernatural horror film directed by Danny and Michael Filippo. This is their directorial feature uh, film debut. And hey, good job, you know, you two Aussies. It it, it works. I, I actually really enjoyed this one. I expected to really not like it. <clears throat> but I, I enjoyed it. The film follows a group of teenagers who discover that they are able to contact spirits using a mysterious embalmed hand, only for one of them to take things too far. That's very true. It's kind of like how the monkey's uh, paw or the monkey's fist uh, classic iconic tale goes. Let me get a sip of water here. Ah, so they essentially use it to their advantage. Like, you know, uh, they grab the hand and say, like, talk to me. And then they get this sense of like euphoria, kind of hallucinogenic aspect. And they see these uh, paranormal type things that essentially possess them, I guess, kind of like how, like I just said, like a hallucinogenic like drug would make you feel. They get possessed and then it like makes them do things that they aren't necessarily familiar with because it's an outer body experience. It's not really them. It's that ghost within them and within their psyche, like doing their bidding, I guess, if you will. Um, yeah, it was definitely an interesting kind of tale. Uh, Talk to Me had its preview screening at a 2022 Adelaide Film Festival, followed by its world premiere at the 2023 Sundance Film Festival as of this year, January 22nd, 2023. Theatrically released uh, Australia July 27th, 2023, and internationally the following day in July 28th. <clears throat> it grossed $46 million over a $4.5 million budget. And yeah, it's clearly doing very well for itself. And like I said, I mean, I'm enjoying, I enjoyed my time watching it. I was you know, glued to my seat, just curious as to what was going to happen. And I believe there's a sequel in the works coming up soon as well. Um, yeah, I enjoyed it. Talk to me is a co-production of, uh, Causeway films, Bankside films, and talk to me holdings. It is a presentation of screen Australian in association with South Australian film corporation. 
They, uh, the Filippo brothers uh, worked closely with producer Samantha Jennings on the co-founders of production company Causeway Films. They knew her from working with her on The Babadook. That was also an Australian film. that It, it had potential, and then I'm like, at the end, I'm like, okay, so this weird ghost-like creature in the book is their pet now that lives in the basement, and they feed it dog food. I'm like, that's kind of dumb. The way that it ended was just dumb to me. They credit her with uh, keeping them grounded and helping them to shake the film. The film was set in the filmmaker's hometown of Adelaide, South Australia. The Filippo brothers have said that they are committed to filming or at least doing post-production in Australia for all future projects. And I don't blame them. They might as well just stay there and do it because I mean, otherwise you have to <laughs> account for the cost of moving somewhere to film something, you know. If you can just do it in your backyard, why not? Talk to Me sold numerous international distributors at the 2022 Cannes Film Festival. Had its debut in a previous screening at Adelaide uh, 30th October 2022 as of last year and the closing night at the festival. <sighs> receptively box office as of 2023 august 20th um as of today uh talk to me has grossed 37.4 million on off of a 4.5 million dollar budget and 8.8 .8 million other countries and territories for a worldwide gross of 46.2 million collectively so they you know are clearly making a, a huge success for themselves these uh young australian bucks so good for them in the united states and canada talk to me was released alongside haunted mansion originally projected to gross 4.5 million from uh, 2,300 uh, theaters in its opening weekend. Interesting. Critically uh, review aggregator website Rotten Tomatoes, 94% out of 231 critics with an average uh, positive rating, 7.8 out of 10. The website's consensus reads, a gripping story and impressive practical effects. Very much so. It, it's very, it has like a late 80s, early 90s kind of like, you know, paranormally poltergeisty feel to it. And it works. It's a terrifically creepy 21st century horror yarn built on a classic foundation of practical effects. Metacritic, using a weighted average of 76 out of 100 off of 44 critics. Generally favorable reviews. Audiences polled by cinema score, giving the film an average of a B plus on an A to F scale. Damon Wise of Deadline uh, praised the film, though it employs some familiar tropes. Sure, nothing's really new anymore, so get over it. Attempt to do something new with an old idea, for one thing, making the crossing of infernal thresholds seem like an awful lot of fun. Agreed. Agreed. I really enjoyed it. Future, as of August 2023, uh, today essentially, uh, the Filippo brothers revealed that they had already completed principal photography on a prequel film, interesting, with the story exploring Duckett's backstory leading to the character's introduction into the original film. Production was completed consecutively from the perspective of screen life storytelling through mobile phones and social media. Okay, that's fair. They try to make it as relevant as possible. I get it. The filmmaker stated they intended to release this project in the future, additionally confirming plans to develop a sequel as well, saying they've already written sequels for their sequences for that particular project. A24, the production company, announced that the sequel titled Talk To Me, the number to me, was in development with the studio releasing the official logo at the same time. <clears throat> the uh, co-directing brothers formed a script written by returning writers Danny and Bill Hinsman. So, I mean, hey, good for them, man. If, they, if they're able to achieve some sort of sense of trilogy involved with this film and have similar but yet different tropes and achieve the same uh i guess impact that it has since i watched it then more power to him man you know i will be on the lookout for those all right as of indb talk to me 2022 rated r hour 35 minutes has a seven and a half out of twenty two thousand reviews uh when a group of friends discover how to conjure spirits using an embalmed hand they become hooked on the new thrill until one of them goes too far and unleashes terrifying supernatural forces oh Starring a bunch of uh, no-name individuals from Australia that I really know. I think this is a lot of their uh, starting roles as far as acting is concerned. Okay, that being said, let's move down to Trivially. Oh, boy. Six hands were made for the film showing, or excuse me, should any of them happen to get damaged or broken, director Danny Filippo kept one of the hands. Interesting. Danny and Michael uh, Filippo, the brothers, turned down the chance to direct an unknown film in the DCU in favor of having Talk To Me, their directorial debut instead. And good for them, because they did a good job. Except for a couple of grip rig shots, the entire second possession scene montage was actually shot in less than one hour. Crazy. Debut theatrical film uh, of directing brothers Danny Filippo and Michael Filippo. First lead starring role in a theatrical film of uh, actress Sophia Wilde. Sure, I mean, I, I can almost guarantee that like I said before, a lot of these uh, individuals, this is their first, you know, uh, role. Uh, Danny Filippo co-wrote the film with Rocka Rocka collaborator Bill Hinsman, who's the writer for this film. The team was joined by producer Samantha Jennings and Christina Caton for Causeway Films, who made the film Babadook, an Australian film is just as well known as this one is now. 
Uh, and this is pretty crazy, interesting news. The film was actually banned in Kuwait due to the appearance of the trans actor Zoe Tarakis. So, I mean, that's, it's 2023 people just, you know, accept people for who they are. I mean, you don't necessarily have to agree with it or tolerate it or like it or what, I mean, just whatever. Everybody, I guess, has their own beliefs. I mean, I, you know, I, I let people be people and just, it doesn't bother me. Do what you have to do. And if you're in a film, I will watch it if it's a good movie. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, just being honest. That being said, Still, more trivia. Debut theatrical film of Australian actress Sophia Watley. Yeah, I already read that. I feel like a fucking broken record. Screenplay was written by, okay, okay. Actor Joe Bird's debut. Yeah, okay, nothing really else. I mean, cause all it's going to keep saying is, uh, you know, a uh, <laughs> starting role for this particular individual. Because, I mean, of course, they're all young buck Australians that nobody really knows about. Released July 20th, 2023. Countries of origin in Australia and the UK. Uh, box office 4.5 million and as i've stated according to imdb grossing worldwide 43.9 million so hey good for them you know all right uh, i talked to executive decision indiana jones dial of destiny as well as talk to me i'm going to take a quick break here get some uh, water and use the restroom and i will come back and i will talk about some other films hang on a second All right, welcome back to Marshall Media Montage, episode 94. All right, I'm going to be talking no hard feelings. I had a great time with this. I thought it was hilarious. I'm normally not like the biggest uh, Jennifer Lawrence fan, but I was like, you know what? It looks funny. Uh, Matthew Broderick's in it. I'm going to see what this film has to convey, and I thought it was hilarious. Uh, it's 2023 rated R, hour 43 minutes, has a 6.5 out of 45,000 reviews, and like, rightly so. It's like her own version of like super bad meets like this is the end. I... I I thought it was great. It's it's a good rom-com. On the brink of losing her home, Maddie, uh, Jennifer Lawrence's character, finds an intriguing job listing helicopter parents looking for someone to bring their introverted 19-year-old son out of his shell before college. She has one summer to make him a man or die trying. Directed by Jean Stupnitsky. Uh, I believe it's a Russian name. Yeah, by the, by the uh, last uh, letters involving his name. What else has he done? Uh, he produced episodes of The Office. He did The Good Boys, which was like the kids' version of uh, Superbad. I only relate everything to Superbad because I feel like that's really what, I don't know, sparked a lot of these kind of comedies. Uh, and The Good Boys, it, it was okay. And uh, he also did Bad Teacher, which I hear was pretty funny. I still have yet to watch that one. He produced that one. So, okay, I will be on board for uh, paying attention to some of the things that he's written as well as uh, produced and so forth. Um, Matthew Broderick plays Laird Becker, Percy Becker's uh, father in this film. Who else is really in this one that I don't really recognize anybody else uh, worth mentioning? Yeah, nobody else that I know, so I'm just going to move on. What else we got here? Uh, The tagline is uh, pretty, period. Awkward, pretty. Yeah, perfect. It's all you need. That's it. Trivially. Let's get right to it. After hearing the criticism about the 15-year age gap between the two main characters, Gene Stupnitsky pointed out that there was a 15-age-year difference between the characters played by Jennifer Lawrence and Bradley Cooper in Silver Linings Playbook as of 2012. But <clears throat> I said 2020 <laughs> Uh Well, it's so the year 20,000. <laughs> I went way too far into the future. The year 2012. Well, I'm dumb. But no one had an issue with that at the time is all I was trying to convey. Wow. Okay, while his character is going to attend Princeton, Andrew Barth Feldman delayed going to Harvard due, uh, due to starring in this film. That's pretty funny. Jennifer Lawrence described her experience working alongside Andrew Barth Fredman as akin to working with Christian Bale due to their improvisational abilities. Interesting. Oh, that's right, because, yeah, she worked with Christian Bale in American Hustle, and that was a solid film. Loved that movie. Jennifer Lawrence revealed that she did all of her nude scenes so that there was no sun double. <laughs> wow. Okay, well, there you have it. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence said that this was her most fun film to make uh, to date thus far. So, okay, and more power to her. All right. No stunt double. Interesting. Well, there you have it. There's no, uh, there's no green screen. There's no, uh, you know, somebody else's face, whatever. So that was legitimately her. Okay, right on. Uh, <laughs> released June 23rd, 2023. Also known as Vu M. Dayu. Uh, sure, whatever country that's from. Excuse my uh, butchering of non-English here. Filming uh, location took place in Montauk, uh, New York uh, box office, $45 million, and it grossed to $86 million. So it almost doubled its uh, income there, or excuse me, doubling its budget, so therefore making its money back, $86.3 million. All right, let's see what uh, Wikipedia has to say here. It was released in the U.S., Sony Pictures releasing June 23rd, 2023. The project was announced October 2021, with Columbia Pictures winning a bidding war over Apple Original Films, Netflix, and Universal Pictures. Jennifer Lawrence joined the cast and produced the film with Stupnitsky attached to direct the film. Much of the cast joined in September to October as of last year, 2022. Filming began September in various Nassau County locations in New York, metropolitan area, before finishing that following November as of 2022. Okay. 
Let's take a look here. Production. October 21 announced that Sony Pictures' highly competitive R-rated comedy, uh, comedy package backed by produced uh, star Jennifer Lawrence and director Gene Stepnitsky over studios. Uh, July 2022, it reported that Sony would be moving forward with the film, engaging in theatrical release as of June 16th of this year, 2023. Principal photography began late September 2022, wrapping in November in Nassau County. Filming concluded, uh, yes, that November. Plot came from the real Craigslist and sent to Stubnitsky. Oh, wow. The plot came from a real Craigslist offer. That's crazy. And sent to Stubnitsky by producers Provisiero and Bob Odenkirk. Cool, nice. It makes perfect sense why it's so funny. With the former telling Lawrence about the story over dinner with her in mind for the role, Michael Dana, Dana, excuse me, and Jessica Rose Weiss composed the film score. Okay. That's pretty cool. Uh, receptively, our critical response. Review aggregator, 71% out of 118 critics reviews positive with average rating 6.1 out of 10. The website's consensus reads, this raunchy comedy often plays a disappointingly safe. Jennifer Lawrence's comedic and dramatic chops ensure that the end result prompts no hard feelings. Metacritic, using weighted average, assigning the film a score of 59 out of 100 based on 50 critics, indicating mixed or average reviews. Cinema score, giving the film an average of B plus on an 8F scale. Uh, controversy. Some commentators accuse no hard, feel- no hard Feelings of promoting sexual grooming. Interesting. In an article for Bust, Carmela de Acquisito wrote, Take a moment to think about this film would be made if the genders were reversed. Can you imagine pitching a film where a 32-year-old man was paid to groom and coerce a 19-year-old woman into having sex that she didn't want to have sex with? That's fair. No one would make that film, but it's presented as funny and quirky when a grown woman does the manipulating. Uh, I mean, Okay. In defense of the film, uh, Sophie Butcher of Empire wrote that the premise is supposed to be icky and that the film is constantly addressing it, saying Maddie is frequently confronted by the generational gap between her and Percy's peers. But her immaturity means that she also often has seemed childlike in comparison. Feldman, who plays Percy, said in an interview regarding the controversy that the film never condones the things that Jennifer's character does or that my character's parents do. It is a movie about flawed people and it's cringe uh, comedy on purpose. You're meant to cringe. You're meant to sit with those uncomfortable feelings. He also noted that the film normalizes wanting to find love and connection. That's very true. Not pressuring young males to have sexual relationships. So even this young kid was very just mature for the film. So I applaud you for that. I'd I'd say go watch this film any which way you can. I had a good time with it. I thought it was hilarious. All right. Moving on to M. Night Shyamalan's Gold. Thank you, uh, Mark, for uh, mentioning this one to me. I know I've heard of it before i definitely remember the cover i just was like ah it's m night Shyamalan." i'm like this is gonna be bad and uh, i really enjoyed this one i was very surprised with that so thank you mark for the recommendation i will talk about it now i'm gonna start with wikipedia is a 2021 american horror thriller film directed by m night Shyamalan, based on the french language swiss graphic novel sandcastle by pierre oscar levy and frederick peters the film features an ensemble cast of uh who do i know here rufus sewell yes alex wolf Thomas McKenzie, Abby Lee, who else do I recognize? I don't really recognize anybody else, so I'm not going to name any names, just being honest. Shyamalan decided to adapt the Sandcastle French film into a film that he uh, wanted to convey uh, after receiving it as a Father's Day gift in 2017. The untitled project was announced in September 2019 with the filmmaker revealing a partnership with Universal. The following year, filming took place in the uh, Dominican Republic for three months during the COVID pandemic with cinematographer Michael Giolacchi, uh, excuse my pronunciation if it's incorrect. Uh, old premiered at Jazz at Lincoln Center, New York City, in July 19, 2021. It was theatrically released in the United States in July 2023. Uh, the film grossed $90 million against an $18 million budget, so it definitely did really well for itself. While receiving mixed reviews from critics, praising its cinematography and premise, but criticized the screenplay's dialogue and acting performances. Agreed, the acting was pretty stupid. The dialogue was, it was okay, but the cinematography and the message there and the screenplay itself... Uh, with the film's twist ending and themes receiving polarized uh, responses, can I, I can attend or I can contend with that and agree. I, I, I get that. But yeah, I, I enjoyed it overall. Okay, what do we got here? Uh, production wise, development pre production 2019, Universal announced its plans to distribute two then untitled independently financed thriller films written directed by M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, there are wonderful studios out there. Universal has made it a mandate to release original films. They're best at finding an audience for new stories with unexpected tones. I believe the original film are is crucial to the longevity of its own theatrical experience. Agreed. So, more power to them. Uh, receptively, what do we got here? Describing the openings of Old and Snake Eyes as weak, apparently. Uh, Michael Siepley wrote an analysis to explain the audience's decline in the box office, streaming sites, and television by using Oscom's Razor. 
maybe as a group we are suffering from screen fatigue. Eh, sure, not in the narrow sense of migraines, eye strain, and computer vision syndrome, but in a much bigger way as a culture. We are tired of Zoom calls, agreed. We are tired of event television. We are also very tired of looking at ourselves on media screens, large and small. Okay, all right. Critical response. Here we go. Review aggregator Rotten Tomatoes. 50% of 337 critics' reviews are positive with an average rating of 5.6 out of 10. The consensus reads, Old has no shortage of interesting ideas. Director M. Night Shyamalan's uneven execution will intrigue or annoy viewers with little middle ground uh, between. Metacritic using a weighted average assigning the film a score of 55 out of 100 based on 53 critics, indicating mixed or average reviews. Audiences polled by CinemaScore giving the film an average C plus on OA to F scale. While post-track reported 61% audience members giving it a positive score, with 37 saying they would definitely recommend it. Okay, so yeah, it's definitely it's definitely mixed overall. Uh, I enjoyed it. You know, the film's themes and twist ending received polarizing response. Sandcastle, the novel film that it is based on, excuse me, ends without explaining why the beach ages its guests. Wilkinson found the ending to be much more satisfying. Right, because he had to have some. In films, it's better to have some sort of sense of closure. Uh, most, I feel like, audiences, when they watch films, don't really like an open ending, personally. Uh, Peter Travers of ABC News said that he was shocked to find out how clumsily uh, Shyamalan handled the potent themes about sudden death and the collapse of time that should resonate powerfully in the COVID-19 era. Even his argument for family values in the face of global youth worship feels rote. Sure, whatever. All right, well, what do we got here? Uh, okay, all right, I will move on to IMDb. Uh, come on, come on, work with me, work with me. Okay, here we go. 2021 PG-13 Hour 48 has a 5.8 out of 10 uh, out of 146,000 reviews. Uh, I'd give it at least a 6. I enjoyed it uh, compared to like what, you know, Unbreakable, uh, Signs, and Sixth Sense. I feel like out of, let's just say, the 10 films that he did, I like four or five of them. I like about half of them. Uh, vacationing family discovers that the secluded beach where they are relaxing for a few hours is somehow causing them to age rapidly, reducing the entire lives into a single day. Yeah, I mean, you know, the kids, they grow up, like, in the span of, I don't know, two hours. They age, like, 15 years. The elderly uh, individuals, you know, they start to develop, like, uh, Alzheimer's or the one lady has, like, a tumor that they have to take out. And, you know, some people have these, uh, like, blood deficiencies and so forth. And the one guy has, like, a bloody nose, like, throughout the entire segment, you know, before he passes. Uh, The one doctor ends up essentially going crazy because he has a mental problem. It's all about these people who go to this island who essentially have some sort of physical or mental abnormality and they're there to essentially retrieve the information from them on this beach. These doctors are watching them and they use that to exploit uh, possible solutions to help uh, future benefactors. So these these people are basically on this beach as lab rats to be used for the benefit of everybody else with unbeknownst to their knowing. So it's, it's pretty interesting. That's basically the plot twist there. Um, I'd still say watch it for those of you that are interested. It's it's definitely worth a watch, and you can deduce your own uh, deductive reasoning into whether you like it or not. Okay, what do we got here? Uh, Storyline. The summer visionary filmmaker M. Night Shyamalan unveils a chilling, mysterious old thriller about a family on a tropical holiday who discover that the secluded beach where they are relaxing for a few hours is somehow causing them to age rapidly, reducing their entire lives into a single day. I believe it was like, I think most of the people who were like midlife only got about a day. I think People who were younger had about maybe two to three days. Uh, the tagline is, it's only a matter of time. And that's, you know, rightly so. Attributely, let's see what I got here. It's an adaptation of the 2010 graphic novel, uh, like I said before, Sandcastle by Frederick Peters. When asked what inspired him to adapt the book to film, director M. Night Shyamalan uh, exclaimed this, the book gave me the opportunity to work through a lot of anxieties I had around death and aging and things like my parents getting older. That's That's fair. The movie that Charles Rufus Sewell cannot think of stars both Marlon Brando and Jack Nicholson is The Missouri Breaks, 1976. That's interesting. Its plot has no relation to this film. Uh, Yeah, he mentions it a couple times. The uh, director, or not director, excuse me, the doctor played by Rufus Sewell in this film. He's just clearly losing his mind because this uh, island ages you, uh, like I said, whether it be mentally or physically. And he clearly already had a mental uh, issue with just essentially losing his mind, I guess, if you will. Um... That being said, I am curious. I will have to watch that film now, The Missouri Breaks. I'm curious. <laughs> Before production, M. Night Shyamalan screened two films for his cast and crew, which were said to be the big influences on the style and tone for the that he wanted for old. The first is Walkabout 1971, 
And the second was Picnic at Hanging Rock, 1975. Shyamalan described them as stories about human beings struggling against the overwhelming power of nature. Films where nature becomes something mysterious, overwhelming, and almost supernatural and untangible. Films in 20, uh, this was filmed in 2020. During the height of global coronavirus uh, pandemic, cast and crew had to be tested daily for potential infections as of uh, being stated in the production. The main priority was to keep everyone safe and well. Despite all of us living and working together over a period of months, nobody became sick, which was fantastic. Lastly, for trivia here, M. Night Shyamalan was inspired by Australian new wave films like Picnic at Hanging Rock in 1975 for the uh, freeze tag game that the kids play on the beach. The idea of the kids freezing in time was meant to compare with the kids rapidly aging later in the film. And yeah, it's very synonymous with that aspect of this film. So bravo there, M. Night Shyamalan. It's really cool that you... Uh, it's not like he's listening to my fucking podcast, but it's really cool that he goes into that that psyche of that particular character and really wants everything to be involved. It's not just like, all right, uh, willy-nilly, let me film it action. You know, it makes a lot more sense. The film is also known as Decrepit. That's pretty cool. That actually would have been kind of a cool title for this as well. Um, filmed in Dom- Dominican Republic, uh, Playa El Valle, Samana, at the beach, of course, because that's pretty much where the whole film is fucking take place. Uh, box office budget 18 million worldwide gross 90 million so it clearly did pretty well for itself so good job m nice all right i'm going to take one last quick little break and i'm going to be talking about these two anime ovas and i'm going to do a closeout and that'll be the episode all right thanks all right i'm going to be closing out this uh episode with apocalypse zero and 80 police files i watched apocalypse zero first and i will be uh, gladly discussing that i've been in the mood for some like anime ova from the 80s and 90s that are just overtly just grotesque and just bizarre and out there like whether it be violent or overly just i don't know exploitative in regards to just the human psyche and just sexually just bizarre i don't know i just it's just intrigued me and uh, i was like you know what i'm gonna start watching some of these and uh, i'm glad that i did even though they're incredibly just bizarre and messed up (laughs) that being said Apocalypse Zero, known in Japan as Encouragement of Resolve, Kakugo no Susume, a manga series written and illustrated by Takayuki Yamaguchi, serialized in Akita Shoten's weekly Shonen Champion from July 1994 to August 1996. The manga adapted into two-episode OVA original video animation, 96, animated by Ashi Productions, produced by Big West Advertising and Victor Entertainment and Tomi. All right, luckily the plot here isn't necessarily too, too much, so I will... describe this to you as much as possible uh, that way in case for those of you that are intrigued be like yo you got to watch this okay that being said kakugo and harara uh, two brothers trained by their father obero to slay monsters that have begun roaming the streets of the post-apocalyptic 21st century tokyo of course following a devastatingly powerful earthquake in order to aid them in their quest obero entrusts his two sons with fortified armor shells Cyborg exoskeletons forged using the souls of deceased warriors by their grandfather, a former scientist of the Imperial Army of Japan during World War II, Shiro Hagakure. However, Harada, uh, one of the uh, individuals who's uh, the brother, he becomes possessed by a mysterious evil from deep within his armor, mutating his body into a far more androgynistic uh, antagonist, one as well as filling him with a desire to destroy all of mankind in order to help cleanse the earth of contamination. Some years later, Kakugo moves to reverse Cross High School, located in one of the ruined districts of Tokyo, near the castle from which Harada commands their demon army. It's now up to Kakugo to defeat his evil sibling and put a stop to their wicked legions, which was pretty interesting because before he puts on this exoskeleton, you can tell that he's uh, more masculine-looking, his brother, and then once he gets this other particular you know, exoskeleton, I guess, morphed to him, you know, and then when uh, Harada takes it off, like, he clearly looks like a woman or either trans or something because I'm like, okay, that's a dude. Why does he have boobs? It doesn't make any sense. Like, it's just, it's whatever. But it was still really cool. I, I enjoyed the film very much so, uh, or at least the mini series, I guess, if you will. All right, let me see what else we got here. Uh, the manga, Apocalypse Zero, series written and illustrated by Takayuchi Yamaguchi. Uh, serialized, okay. Uh, the, mon- the manga was published in Italy by Dynamic Italia, flipping it in left-to-right format. From 2010 to 2014, Yamaguchi wrote Exo Skull Zero, a reboot of Apocalypse Zero, featuring a similar protagonist and a slightly different plot. It was published in Akita Shoten's Champion Red magazine. The OVA, co-produced by Victor Entertainment, Tomi, and Big West Advertising, animated for Ashi Productions, uh, released in Japan in two volumes from October 23, 1996 to December 18th of the same year on VHS and Laserdisc. The OVA was planned to have 10 episodes, but canceled after the completion of the second episode. The reasons for the OVA cancellation are currently still unknown to this day. 
The anime was released in Italy in 1999 in VHS. Uh, the U.S. license for Apocalypse Zero was acquired by Media Blasters, who created a dubbed English version, although I watched the subbed version uh, of the anime translated by Takashi Sakuto and produced by Bang Zoom Studios. The two VHS volumes released June 20th to August 22nd of 2000. A DVD release containing both episodes released August 28th, 2001, the following year. A Region 2 DVD with both episodes released in Japan by Toshiba in 2003. A video game, wow, I don't think I knew that, based on Apocalypse Zero, released on PlayStation on March 21st, 1997, exclusively in Japan. Of course, it would have been too much for uh, U.S. audiences at that time, I get it. The game is a standard 3D fighting game, okay, allowing the player to go head-to-head against the CPU or against another player, featuring seven characters to choose from based on both the anime and manga and animated cutscenes taken from the OVA. Ah, oh, that's fucking badass. I almost feel like, uh, I hope I get to go back to Japan. I'll, I'll probably, even even if I can't play it or understand it, just to have this, I'll, I'll probably pick it up. And it's probably, like, I don't know, a thousand yen, so like maybe ten bucks American? Like, come on. Anyway, receptively. Due to the use of gratuitous violence and repulsive imagery, critical uh, reception of Apocalypse Zero in the West had been largely negative. Of course, at that time, we weren't really necessarily used to it. John Opliger of Anime Nation called Apocalypse Zero's OVA the most viscerally violent and gruesome anime. He has seen an arguably the most grotesque anime ever made. I I, I don't know. I, maybe I'm just <laughs> numb and jaded to this kind of stuff now. I mean, yeah, it's pretty out there, but I'm not like, oh my god, it made me want to puke. I don't want to watch this ever again. Anime America called Apocalypse Zero the best anime splatter vision uh, in its best of the best awards. When a 45-minute video features a scene where someone's face is sucked off, true, and it's not even the most shocking thing in the video. The magazine proclaimed, you'll know you'll be getting into a horror show's money worth if you watch this. <laughs> That's very true. Despite this, the manga was well-received and popular in Japan. Apocalypse Zero managed to be one of the finalists for the 1997's Tezuka Osumo Cultural Prize, losing out to Doraemon from Fujiko Fujio. The context, the Japanese title is an allusion to the encouragement of learning. Gakuma no Sosume from Yukichi Fukuzawa, an important early Japanese advocate during the Meiji uh, restoration of that time. Let's see what IMDb has to say about it. All right. Original title, Kakugo no Susume, as I've mentioned. TV series, 1996, an hour and 20 altogether, has a 5 out of 229 reviews. I think it deserves higher than that. I'd at least give it like a 6, 6.5 if not even higher, and I don't know why more people haven't watched it. Maybe because it's fucked up? I don't know. Kakugo and Harara are siblings trained to fight the monsters roaming in post-apocalyptic Tokyo as of the 21st century. To aid them, Kakugo and Harara were entrusted with fortified armor exoskeleton shells. Forged from the souls of deceased warriors after Harara succumbs to the evil within the armor and is up to Kakugo to defeat his sibling with the help of their uh, dad, Oboro. Anyway, all right, moving on. Uh, I don't know anybody who did the voiceovers because, like I said, I'm I'm looking here and I actually, like I said, I listened and watched the uh, the subbed version. I I typically will try and do the subbed because I feel like it's a little more true to what would uh, the Japanese audience do the best they can to convey to their uh, audience as far as the truth goes. Taglines here is "Prepare to fight, prepare to die." Eh, a little cliche and kind of dumb, but sure. All right, let me uh. Uh, let me take a look here as trivia is concerned. There's probably not going to be too much. I don't know. What do we got here? Uh, I don't actually have any trivia on it. I guess it's one of those kind of under the radar, under par kind of things. All right. Well, uh, released June 20th as of 2000 in the U.S. Production companies Big West, Tomy, and Victor Entertainment. Really not too much else on it as far as IMDb. That was kind of... Uh, you know, poorly uh, presented there. All right, that being said, I will move on to, I guess, AD Police Files then here. I will start with uh, Wikipedia. AD Police Files is a 1993 three-part OVA produced by Umex and animated by Artemic and AIC. Set in the year 2027, not too far from the future now. A prequel to the uh, fantastic uh, anime Bubblegum Crisis OVA. Focusing mainly on AD Police Officer Leon McNichol, the future rival and love interest of Night Saber Priscilla Asagiri. Due to the legal conflict between Artemic and uh, Umex, the production series was stopped with only three complete episodes made. The plot, chronologically set five years before the events of Bubblegum Crisis, and focus on AD Police, Advanced Police, Inspector Liam McNichols' early days within the uh, files of that particular um, career uh, choice. Let me, uh, what do we got here? There's three episodes, as I've stated, released. North America, licensed by Animigo 
first released the series of VHS Laserdisc in 1993 with Japanese and English subtitles. The later reissued it in both formats, 95 with the English dub produced by uh, Southwind Studios in Wilmington, North Carolina. I actually, once again, uh, I have the subbed version and I was watching it and I'm like, oh, this is pretty cool. Uh, having never watched Bubblegum Crisis before, but I've heard about it and I hear great things about it. The show released to be by, and I wanted, sure, I'm watching it out of order, I guess, because I, I believe it was Bubblegum Crisis, then it was this, the prequel, and then there's also the one that came after Bubblegum Crisis and this. That's, uh, I believe, the sequel to that series, and I just, I, I wanted to watch it, I guess, in chronological order, if you will. <sighs> On September 27, 2015, Anim announced that they will be funding a brand new HD telescene of the series from the original 35mm film in House through Kickstarter with Blu-ray release planned for 2016. The UK series, licensed by Manga Entertainment, produced their own English dub for VHS in 94, later issued onto a dub-only DVD in 2004. Their release is now out of print. Receptively, uh, in 500 essential anime movies, described the Phantom Woman as the video definitely not for the fainted heart, noting that the design is good and its atmosphere well-maintained, but it's Aikawa's script that will stick in your mind. Also praising the man who bites his tongue as a stylish, dark retelling of Robocop. Very much so. I can agree with that. I really love the North American manga cover. It looks really cool. Very much like, I don't know, like Death Spa meets like Robocop. Super, super cool looking. Uh, the manga AD Police uh, Shuen Toshi, a sign-in manga series uh, illustrated by Tony Takazaki, is set between the first and second part of AD Police Files. The manga is set in 2032. An elite group of highly trained, specially uh, equipped police officers who have been formed to deal with terrorist activities and boomer crime in the city of Mega Tokyo offered a great deal of leeway in their activities, often blockading large sections of the city, causing great amounts of property damage in the course of fulfilling their duty despite their dedication to their jobs. However, the citizens of Mega Tokyo tend to dislike and distrust members of the AD police force, seeing them as corrupt and ineffectual. And I can I can attest to that. It's it's pretty interesting. Um, all right, let's see what IMDb has to say about this uh, little mini-series. Three different unique stories about an elite police force called the AD Police, uh, coming from AD Police Files. Released in 1990, it is not rated. It is two hours and one minutes. Here, it has a 6.7 out of only 950 reviews. I don't know why too many people, I guess, don't really watch it or... I don't know, whatever. I, I'm having a good time watching it, you know. I, I think it's pretty great. I will gladly uh, indulge in Bubblegum Crisis next. Okay, the uh, following series is called Bubblegum Crash that takes place after uh, Bubblegum Crisis. Okay, all right. Uh, Storyline here. In the future, many difficult and undesirable jobs are handled by specially designed androids called BUMAs, Boomas or Boomers. Unfortunately, many of them have a danger to going berserk, and when that happens, only the AD police are equipped and trained to deal with them. When one AD cop is killed in one of these missions, his life insurance may be canceled due to some unanswered questions. To clear that up, two cops decided to investigate the target's android's background on their free time. Unknown to them, another android is following them with her own agenda. It's almost like, yeah, like Robocop meets, like, like I said, like Blade Runner. It's it's really, really cool, this uh, anime crime sci-fi thriller. Um, I'm definitely really, really enjoying it. Uh, alternatively, there are two English dubs, an Animago dub and a Manga UK dub. So there's different uh, aspects of English dialogue here. I guess I'm glad I'm reading the uh, subbed version. Lastly, what do I have here? Released February 23rd, 1994, also known as AD Police File 1. Production company Art Mick and Bandai Entertainment. Bandai does a lot of great work. I love that. Uh, all right. Well, there you have it. I guess episode 94. I talked seven films, what games I'm playing, recent pickups, and uh, some anime OVAs because I need to watch more of those. I have some physical and I have some digital. All right. That being said, always a pleasure. Thank you guys for your love and support and listening to me. Um, you can reach me at uh, shazz.boxx.88 uh, at hotmail.com or letz.surf.88 at gmail.com. I'm having a lot of fun doing this. Uh, it's It's been a blessing. Uh, having coming up on almost 100 episodes of talking to you guys about dorky stuff that I love. Apparently, you guys like listening to it too. As always, thank you for the love and support, everybody. Enjoy the rest of your day wherever you are. Have a good one. Thank you. Mm-hmm.